This podcast provides information to help esports professionals identify and approach legal problems. This podcast is intended for informational purposes only. Legal information is not the same as legal advice, which is an application of law to a party's specific set of circumstances. You should not and are not authorized to use this podcast as a source of legal advice. And the information in this podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship between the Law of Esports podcast, any of the lawyers or affiliates of the podcast, and any consumer of this podcast. Welcome to the Law of Esports podcast, the number one podcast to discuss legal issues as they apply to the world of esports. My name is Jake Hicks, and I represent teams, leagues, and organizations. And my name is Nefi Lopez, and I represent players, streamers, and personalities. And today we have a fantastic episode on the cutting edge of developments in the world of mergers, acquisitions, and antitrust, starting with the Activision Blizzard and Microsoft merger and discussing all of the ins and outs of everything going into that deal, especially as it applies to esports. But first, we want to take just a moment to discuss the fact that In our post history, we have episode five, which aired probably six to eight months ago. And now we have episode six, six to eight months later. And one of the reasons for that hiatus is because Nephi and I were approached and pitched by certain entities to acquire and carry the podcast and pay real money for it. Uh, And we discussed those issues and did not find an offer that we felt was worth it. So we are just going back to continuing the podcast as we always have with just us two. Now, I know that sounds like uh, not the best excuse, but for those of you guys that uh, are unaware, those uh, deals uh, to broker them takes months, takes a while. And so, um, you know, we we were heavily considering a few. Unfortunately, we uh, have some non-disclosure agreements, so we can't discuss those organizations. But um, at the end of the day, we felt that the best thing is for us to continue staying individuals um, or what, what's the word? Um, independent. Uh, independent. Um, and so we're just going to proceed as normal and continue releasing our episodes, hopefully in a much more consistent manner. Yeah. But thank you so much for listening. And it's really, really cool. And it's really fun to hear stories about people walking into friends or acquaintances at airports or whatever, and they're listening to our podcast. Uh, it's super cool to hear those stories. So please reach out to us on Twitter if you have any questions, have any ideas, or if you just want to say hi. Uh, and that's the law of esports on Twitter. Uh, we're also happy to see 2022, the new esports seasons that are coming about. CDL is kicking off this weekend. Uh, there's already been a few games played, a few disappointments, uh, a few really cool, really cool games that have been played so far. Uh, we're excited to be part of that season as well. Uh, Nephi and I will actually be in Dallas-Fort Worth at the Optic Home Series, March 4th through 6th. So if you end up at the Dallas Home Series at the Esports Stadium up there for that Optic Home Series, uh, we're going to have face masks on because it's required at that event, but they're going to have the Law of Esports logo on them. Uh, If you see us, just walk up and say hi. We'll be happy to chat and we're hoping to get a few episodes in while we're up there. So uh, really excited about the new year of esports. Yeah, yeah. Just look out for a tall... Uh, strawberry blonde guy and a short uh, rounder Hispanic guy and you know you're going to see that's the magic duo of the Law of Esports podcast I think we also um, do we have VIP tickets or Um, we'll probably end up getting VIP tickets yeah wherever uh, so the VIP tickets have the attached open bar uh, so if you, you'll find us there yeah, if, if you are of age and visit the open bar at the esports event 
uh, at the CDL home series for optic stop by. We'll probably be over there hanging out. Um, but yeah, so, uh, Nephi, what are we talking about today? So let me give you guys a quick roadmap of today's episode. Um, I know a lot of you guys are extremely interested in the very exciting subject of antitrust law. Um, just kidding. It's it's not very exciting, but it is important for everybody listening to understand what it means and uh, how it plays a role in esports and just in 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 the entertainment entertainment space overall. So today we're going to talk first discuss an overview of antitrust law, what it means, what it is. We're going to then move on, talk a little bit about the struggles of Microsoft and the successes and struggles of Activision Blizzard. Um, And then we're going to talk, we're going to do sort of a mini uh, analysis of uh, antitrust and and how it applies to the uh, Activision Blizzard Microsoft acquisition. And then we're going to talk about how it uniquely applies to esports at the very end. So make sure you guys stay tuned. Listen to the end. Our podcast episodes aren't very long anyways. But um, if you want to see how it plays a role, just, you know, stick around to the end. Yeah. So as we get into antitrust law, it's an area of law that you don't really spend a whole lot of time on in law school. Matter of fact, you don't probably spend any time on it as a practicing lawyer unless you are working in the niche area of antitrust and uh, corporate litigation and government affairs. So it's pretty rare. And I think that's why a lot of articles specifically on the Activision Blizzard Microsoft topic are so general. And so we want to go over what antitrust law is just so you have an idea. And this kind of came about in the Industrial Revolution, where you had companies who made the kind of common sense guess that if they got together and they made an agreement that they could control prices, control supply, and essentially control an entire market. So antitrust law goes back a long ways in American jurisprudence. And that's why one of the primary pieces of law that you'll see brought up in antitrust cases is the Sherman Act of 1890. That's when this originally came about. And basically what the Sherman Act of 1890 prohibits is uh, there's some elements to it. One is the existence of an agreement among two or more distinct entities engaging in an activity that unreasonably restrains trade. The activity also affects interstate commerce. And so Basically, you can have kind of two kinds of violations out of this. You can have a per se violation, and per se is just legalese for automatic, and that means price fixing, so entities getting together to set prices. Horizontal agreements, which when we talk about horizontal and vertical, horizontal are companies that sell the same type of product in the same market, or they produce the same type of product to supply the same market. So think of it as Exxon, and BP with oil. Those are horizontal. And so if those two companies get together, that can implicate the Sherman Act. And then you also have um, kind of group boycotts, which don't really exist anymore, but there was once upon a time uh, an area where companies could get together and all agree to not take supplies from a certain region or a certain company and destroy areas of the supply chain in order to get cheaper stuff. There's also a rule of reason violation. So there's per se, which is automatic. And then there's this concept called rule of reason, which is kind of a catch-all that says, uh, okay, you have to prove that the anti-competitive effects outweigh the pro-competitive effects. And we've seen this a lot with monopolies. 
Yeah. Now, before we talk about monopolies, which I'm sure a lot of you guys are well aware about what a monopoly is, let's let's slow the, let's slow it down just a little bit. I'm sure a lot of you guys are a little more well versed, um, you know, and with either the law or you know antitrust laws. I'm sure the Sherman Act is something you guys have heard of all. But what I'm going to do is I'm going to dumb it down a little bit more for you guys that are listening and have absolutely no idea what that means. Okay, so going going kind of taking it back a little bit. Antitrust, right? What does that word mean? Um, you know, the the, the uh, Sherman Act was one of the biggest laws that was passed to, to prevent essentially um, groups of businesses, also known as a trust, right, which is why it says antitrust, that team up to form a monopoly, right, which is what Jake is just about to talk about. Um, and, and the purpose of it is to avoid people from dictating prices or controlling in a particular market, which is what Jake was talking about just a few moments ago. Um, you know, if, if I was to sort of interject my opinion, I think this is a great thing because antitrust laws ensure that there's competition among sellers and other businesses that in turn gives tons of benefits to consumers, such as lower prices, higher quality products, uh, higher quality services, more choices, and above all, and the most important thing, especially for uh, the industry that we're in, is that it encourages an environment that fosters greater innovation. And so antitrust laws are a form of regulation by the government to encourage competition and innovation by limiting the market power that a single competitor can have, right? Some of the examples that he gave us were like BP and Shell or Chevron. Um, something that would apply to our um, industry a little more would be like Sunny versus Microsoft. Um, and, you know, that way, if, uh, you know, antitrust laws are being violated, it, it, it prevents mergers, acquisitions that would concentrate the market power to a single company um, that would essentially reduce others' ability to compete with one another. And so, and that, particularly is known as a monopoly. And so uh, the key is, and, and, you know, we'll talk a, l- a little bit about that, but, you know, we want to prevent multiple companies from colluding with one another um, or turning into one big company that would then inhibit the ability for there to be a healthy com- competition uh, between uh, corporations and, and to avoid price fixing and all that other uh, you know, fun stuff that that typically happens. And by fun, I mean, extremely legal stuff. And so just so you guys are aware, um, whenever I say legal, uh, the, the two main corporations, the two main people that are in charge of enforcing uh, antitrust laws is the FTC, which is the Federal Trade Commission and the DOJ, the Department of Justice, because oftentimes, um, you know, a lot of these corporations are sophisticated. They have individuals like Jake and myself to give them advice on what to do, what not to do, what's legal and what's not legal. And sometimes these corporations take these actions knowingly and willingly, and it can implicate some uh, what's uh, criminal um, implications. Right. In other words, not just civil penalties, but, you know, some of these guys can face some uh, serious uh, time should it be found out that they're, you know, colluding, um, price fixing, doing things of that nature. So I'm going to turn it back over to you. We'll talk about monopolies. Yeah. So when looking at monopolies, you can have uh, an illegal monopoly and a natural monopoly. And a natural monopoly is simply a company that creates something that ends up taking over the market. The interesting thing is that natural monopolies can be illegal monopolies. So you're going to see a lot of articles out there uh, about the merger we're talking about today or about other mergers in the future that claim that a monopoly either is or is not illegal. But the interesting thing is, as lawyers, I don't think we would ever make that sort of clear cut distinction, uh, even in advice to our clients, because an illegal monopoly really just lives in the minds of the executive agencies that examine them and in the mind of the judge that eventually makes the ruling on whether that monopoly is illegal. So if you see an article that says this this uh, merger or this company is an illegal monopoly, it's probably not a lawyer that's writing that. Uh, because again, 
as Nephi said, you have the executive agencies, the FTC and the DOJ, that have to make a case to a federal judge who will then determine whether it's illegal. And and to add a comment to that, just so we're clear, antitrust laws do not establish what, you know, if this is a monopoly, it, it doesn't uh, essentially um, make any decisions, but rather provides guidelines and the courts are the ones that ultimately decide, is this a monopoly? Is this legal? Is this not legal pursuant to the to the uh, Federal Trade Commission's cases that they bring forth in the court of law, as Jake was just saying? Yeah, so uh, when we talk about monopoly, um, there's a couple of cases out there that de- that have determined kind of what monopolies are and are not, and those views have changed throughout time considerably. And so if we look at one very notable uh, case of a monopoly that was challenged, uh, we look at the AFL versus the NFL. Because so we all love football. Yeah, so before the football NFL is what it is today, there used to be two competing leagues. There was a National Football League and an American Football League. And the AFL actually sued the NFL, saying they monopolized football through the 17 teams they had at the time in those 17 cities. And they say that the they claim that the NFL monopolized football in those cities. Well, the Fourth Circuit in 1963 found that the market for football was not city based, but nationally. It was based over the entire country and that the NFL being in in 17 cities at the time did not have a monopoly on the nation. And they ended up merging. There were still questions when the AFL and NFL merged, and they only merged through an act of Congress, literally, the Sports Broadcast Act. So it required the merger of football uh, football leagues to increase and not decrease the total number of teams. And so when it comes to sports, they live kind of in an interesting place in antitrust law. And I think there's two aspects of antitrust law that are really interesting that are very distinct. One is intellectual property and one is sports. If we look at intellectual property, uh, courts have regularly said that controlling price through a legally obtained patent, either one that you develop yourself or one that you purchase for fair market value, is not a monopoly, but you cannot use control over that patent and that IP to control the price over other products that you don't own the IP to. So let me give you guys a quick example. I don't know if you remember uh, several years ago, there was this guy that was notorious for essentially purchasing the patent of a very uh, commonly used chemical in like EpiPens or in, in, in some some medical um, uh, medicine, some some medicinal chemical. And everybody was making a big, you know, stink about it. Hey, that's not fair. This guy owns a patent. He raised the prices significantly. And people were like, this is a monopoly. This is legal. And the government said, hey, it's not a monopoly. And that's precisely because of this particular term that controlling a patent is not a monopoly, right? In other words, if you make a patent for, let's say, like, you know, the toilet paper holder, um, you know, you are entitled to set your price at whatever price you want to set it just because you're the only person in the United States and arguably the planet that can make this particular thing doesn't mean that you own a monopoly. So it's important to understand the distinction in intellectual property because that's something that we see very commonly that, hey, um, that's a monopoly when, you know, in reality, there's a distinction for intellectual property. And one of the ones that we're going to talk about more in detail for you guys is the United States versus Microsoft Corp with Jake. We'll get into that here in a sec. Yeah. So Activision Blizzard and Microsoft is not the first time that Microsoft has been in hot water uh, for uh, an antitrust issue. It's impossible when you're that big to not 
to stay out of hot water. Yeah. And one of the landmark cases in antitrust law is United States versus Microsoft Corp. Uh, and that was appealed from a 1998 case. And there was a decision from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals in 2001. The issue in that case was whether Microsoft was allowed to bundle Internet Explorer, the web browser that everyone kind of hates, uh, with its Windows operating system. And so uh, for a long time, if you wanted to browse the Internet, you had kind of AOL or something. And a lot of that switched to Internet Explorer in the late 90s and early 2000s. And one of the reasons why a lot of people started using Internet Explorer is because it literally came with every computer. It was already on it. You had no choice, essentially. And if you wanted someone to surf your website or use your uh, Internet app out of the box, you had to optimize it for Internet Explorer. And so the United States, the executive agencies sued Microsoft and said that this is a violation of antitrust law. Well, the U.S. government won at the trial court level, and then they mostly won at the D.C. circuit level. The problem was that some of these technological issues with Internet Explorer had many, many technical aspects to them that made reworking the system pretty difficult. So ultimately, Microsoft settled and agreed to provide programming interfaces to third parties. They agreed to extensions on that settlement, and that settlement was ultimately approved with some dissents from the executive agencies trying to enforce them. But the important part is that since 2001, there's been kind of a theme throughout IP and antitrust law where if the technology was advanced enough, you could avoid most antitrust enforcement because you didn't necessarily fit into these, these horizontal control frameworks, nor did you really fit into vertical control frameworks. And I mentioned those two things because outside of monopoly being created by owning IP or owning a patent, you can also create a monopoly through mergers. Now, before we get into mergers, so let me ask you guys, because I'm sure you're asking, well, why, why do I care about this? Why does it matter to me? Let me give you an example. Have you guys ever heard of a company uh, or um, you, just these names, Netscape, Navigator, Opera, or Netscape Navigator, or Opera? Have you guys ever heard of that? The answer is probably not. In case you guys didn't know, those used to be web browsers that were competing with uh, Internet Explorer back in the day. And because of the way that Microsoft was setting up their software, in other words, the only way that you can use right out of the box was Internet Explorer, it essentially inhibited the ability of other arguably or potentially better web browsers back in the day. And because of the way that Microsoft was set up, it essentially buried those guys and they never were able really to to make a, a, a competitive attempt to acquire customers. In other words, if it was not for a case just like the United States versus Microsoft Corporation uh, back in 2001, it could be very well possible that we would have, you know, Google Chrome, Firefox. We wouldn't have these great competitors, which I personally prefer Google Chrome over Internet Explorer. And I think most people prefer anything over Internet Explorer. But for these cases that, that are that that are, are being decided where the court is applying antitrust law, we wouldn't have a lot of the things that we have today. And so it's 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 the reason why I bring this up is it's important for you guys to keep in mind that antitrust laws are important and you should be somewhat aware of them, uh, you know, so that way you can you can kind of see it in real in real time. Oh, this is happening, especially now that we're you know, we're going to move on and talk a little bit about mergers. Um, 
see how it applies to a deal like the $68.7 billion acquisition of Activision Blizzard by Microsoft. Yeah. And so, um, so when we talk about creating monopolies, there's obviously an organic way to do that through just controlling a, a lot of the market, even though market share isn't necessarily a requirement to finding a monopoly. Um, there are organic ways to grow it from a single entity. Although another probably much more popular or at least um, a much more frequent way of creating a monopoly or simply a, an entity that violates antitrust law is through mergers. So you have horizontal mergers, which is what we were talking about before, where you have five oil companies all merged together and now they alone control the price. Or Microsoft and Sony is well, a simple example. Yeah, or like, yeah, Microsoft Microsoft and Apple ever merged and you can only buy one phone and one computer and they set the price on all those things, that'd be a huge problem. Um, vertical integration is where a company buys other, uh, other entities that are in its supply chain, right? So if you have NVIDIA, and then they buy their chip manufacturer, chip designer, and then they buy a silicon mine. Um, that's a type of vertical integration. That's not without scrutiny, but that is a way of integrating where antitrust law is a little bit harder to enforce, at least historically, because there was risk associated with each one of those levels of vertical integration. And so it was harder to set price because you still face competition from the other competitors in each of those verticals. And so uh, with technology that's changed a bit, and I think even with normal vertical integration, there's been some scrutiny in the past, I think just a year ago. Yeah, and so um, one, I mean, it's, it's one of the things, the reason why we're bringing this up is extremely important is, is if you ever look into any articles or anything that's being published out there today, um, talking about, the acquisition of, of AB by Microsoft, you're going to hear a lot of the term of vertical uh, acquisition, right? Or vertical merger. Um, and, and you know, as Jake was saying, what that essentially means is that it's, it's an acquisition by a corporation that doesn't necessarily participate in the exact same type of, of um, services that you're providing or manufacturing or whatever products that you're, that you're producing. Um, and most recently, um, I think it was actually last year, uh, the FTC actually took some actions against NVIDIA uh, on their $40 billion acquisition of a UK-based chip designer uh, and supplier known as Arm Limited, all people know them by Arm. Um, and so without getting into too much into the weeds, Arm is is a big player that that produces energy efficient chips. I mean, their their designs are used in 95% of the world's smartphones, 95% of the chips designed in China, um, and they, they lease um, or license that particular chip design to more than 500 different companies that are competitors to NVIDIA uh, to allow them to make their own semiconductors, right? And without getting into the weeds as to what all that means, essentially what that means is that NVIDIA acquired a company that they argued was a vertical because, oh, they, they do different things. But in reality, NVIDIA, who also produces chips, um, the uh, FTC, you know, uh, did began their own investigations, actually the UK at, the government also did their own investigations and they essentially determined that combining those two companies, um, you know, it would essentially create an environment that would inhibit or stifle innovation uh, because NVIDIA at that point would have so much control over this massive uh, chip manufacturer that would limit 
um, you know, the, their, their competitors. In other words, there's nothing that would stop NVIDIA from raising the prices, from limiting, you know, uh, ARM from selling these neutral, what, what the reason why ARM is, is so important was because they had neutral type chips that could be applied into whatever other design or whatever other uh, type of, of uh, semiconductors these other companies, competitors were making. And so, um, you know, that, that would be an example. You guys can look into it. It's, it's NVIDIA's acquisition of ARM, which I think is still going. I think they anticipated for it to close in March of this year, but it looks like that's going to end up getting shut down. Uh, but, you know, we'll see what happens there. Yeah. And that's kind of an industrial vertical integration example that's pretty standard that I think a lot of anyone that's familiar in any way with antitrust law, even on a cursory level, will understand that if you start buying your suppliers, uh, if you buy enough or if there's only one supplier for the whole industry and you buy them, that's going to implicate antitrust stuff. But I think one of the uh, one of the other interesting aspects of antitrust law is in sports, because kind of like with IP, how it's very tricky and how it's kind of tough to uh, to determine what violates antitrust law and what doesn't, certainly ever since the 2001 Microsoft case. Um, in sports, that's been going on since 1922. There's a federal baseball case where the Supreme Court said that sports aren't a business involved in interstate commerce. Um, and that's since changed a little bit to help players be able to assert their own rights and to achieve fair market value for their skills. And I think one interesting aspect of sports is that courts have held that, you know, when we talk about monopoly or we talk about mergers that violate antitrust law, it's entities that act in concert or in conspiracy with each other. In the world of sports, each team is considered a separate entity. So teams working together to enact rules can be found to be acting in concert, combination, conspiracy that violates antitrust law. Uh, so where sports are generally not monopolies, they can be in certain respects. And so sports is not an escape from antitrust law. It just has a number of carve outs. And so as we talk about the Activision Blizzard Microsoft merger, we need to keep in mind the sports aspect, which contains a number of carve outs, and the intellectual property aspect, which contains a number of gray areas that make it hard to determine what the outcome of any enforcement action would be. But we can pretty much easily identify why Activision Blizzard and Microsoft would want to get together and make this marriage, right? Yeah, and, and I mean, obviously the relationship is, is a no-brainer, right? Activision Blizzard is one of the, I mean, these guys have been producing hits from the start. I mean, think about it. They've, they've got Overwatch, Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, Hearthstone. Um, I Candy mean, Crush. Just, yeah, any, <laughs> anything, anything, uh, um, um, uh, StarCraft. I'm sure some people are cringing right now because I forgot StarCraft. But, you know, these this is a, a massive player, right? And I, I'm sure you guys are asking yourself, well, you know, didn't Microsoft acquire Bethesda? Uh, last year or a couple of years ago, why didn't you talk about then? And 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 not that it wasn't important, but you know we're talking about a massive, massive acquisition. I mean, we're talking about seventy billion dollars here, which is you know about nine times more than the than the acquisition of Bethesda. Um, and you know one of the things you have to understand is that just because the corporation uh, Microsoft has acquired um, or, or has signed a deal with 
um, you know, Activision Blizzard, that doesn't mean that it's it's done, right? It, it takes it takes a long time, and you know, everything in order to be completed has to go through all types of of regulatory hurdles, and so this one in particular. Um, you know, could take a while before, you know, everything is, is stamped okay, um, which is what we're going to talk about next, right? Um, will this, uh, you know, eventually get passed or not? One of the things that we have to kind of take a look at is a type of, of mergers, right? Activision Blizzard is a video game developer, right? They create games. That's what they do. They don't create consoles, right? They don't make a Nintendo PlayStation. They don't have their own version of a console or a next-gen console, whatever you want to call it. Um, Their sole purpose is creating games and creating environments to where those games could be competitive, right? Such as, you know, the Hearthstone Grandmasters, World of Warcraft Arena, World Championship, Overwatch League, Call of Duty League. You know, these guys, what they do is games and creating environments for the games. Microsoft, on the other hand, is a massive, one of the largest corporations on the planet, and, you know, their focus is a little bit different, although they do dabble. Right. And I say dabble because, you know, I'm, uh, they, they they have their own exclusive titles that they have, you know, in-house developers that are making things such as Halo, um, you know, Gears of War, some of the other exclusive games. Um, you know, one of those things is that and, and I don't think Microsoft actually owns Gears of War, but it's important to understand that they are not a game developing company. And so whenever you're out there, you're doing research, you're looking into it, you'll see that most experts are saying, well, this is a vertical transaction, meaning because Microsoft isn't necessarily a a video game developer, right? Like uh, Activision Blizzard, people saying, oh, this is, there's not going to be a problem. It's going to be accepted right away because it's a vertical transaction, right? And I mean, you you can look it out there. You'll see there there are plenty of articles out there um, by people like, you know, the PC uh, 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 PC Mag and uh, what was it? What was the other one? Kotaku, I think, was the one that you were reading. Yeah, uh, and this, yeah. So the the merger is interesting because if you think about antitrust law and especially the world of video games, I think I think it would be hard to argue that Activision Blizzard and Microsoft getting together creates uh, unfair market in the world of just video games. Um, and I think that's why you've seen a number of articles out there taking a very surface level view of this and claiming that there's probably nothing wrong with this merger and that's probably not going to see a, any sort of intense scrutiny or the imposition of an enforcement action to determine whether or not it really is in violation of any sort of antitrust law. And the reason why we bring this up is because that sort of superficial um, overview that a lot of these lawyers are giving these, you know, articles or these uh, websites that that are heavily read. A lot of people, just like yourselves, are looking for information. The thing is, you can't always rely on their information. And so I don't mean to kind of puff our chest out a little bit, but from what we've seen out there, that's not necessarily correct. And, and, you know, Jake and I were talking about this a little bit and everybody is saying, oh, this is a vertical transaction, right? Because it's Microsoft and they don't, they're not game developers. But in reality, it, it's, it's important to understand that, you know, and, and again, I'm not puffing our chest, but that's why you want to get information from people that are actually devoted and are actually working in this particular field. Like, you know, talking about my friend Jake here, that his job is literally working with corporations and giving them advice, uh, precisely one dealing with what's considered a vertical transaction. And, and, you know, he brought up a very good point earlier and I'll let him talk about it. Um, but what a lot of these articles and a lot of these people are not talking about 
is that in September 15, 2021, the Federal Trade Commission withdrew their vertical merger guidelines and commentary, right? Yes, I think that brings us to one critical aspect of evaluating any merger or acquisition when it comes to antitrust concerns. And this is literally what we do for a living. You have to look at the environment in which the transaction is taking place. So you can't rely on the AFL versus the NFL case from 1963, even though it is a Supreme Court case uh, or it's a, a circuit case and there's other Supreme Court cases out there. The environment has changed and the enforcement has changed and the guidelines have changed and they change very quickly. For instance, in 2020, the Trump administration put out new guidelines for vertical integration. Less than a year after that, later in 2020, <laughs> uh, <laughs> those guidelines were withdrawn by the FTC in September of 2020, or September 2021, sorry. September of 2021, the vertical integration guidelines were withdrawn. And specifically, there was a press release in which they uh, withdrew those guidelines. And in that, the FTC says, going forward, the FTC will work with the DOJ to update merger guidance to better reflect market realities. The FTC majority statement lays out several areas for consideration in that review. They want to explore and provide clear guidance on characteristics of transactions that are likely unlawful, and they will look at ways to provide guidance on ineffective remedies. And then they will also look to expand on the harms identified in that 2020 vertical merger guideline and consider various features of modern firms, including in digital markets and impacts of mergers on labor markets. This is massive. It's not only this September 2021 press release. We also, we're recording this podcast on January 23rd. Five days ago, on January 18th, the FTC had a press conference and they issued another press release. So remember how we talked about horizontal mergers and vertical mergers, and generally vertical mergers are kind of okay. Well, September 2021, the FTC says they are going to look at characteristics of transactions in digital markets when they withdrew the vertical merger guidelines. January, January 18th, 2022, the FTC comes out Again, and they say that the antitrust laws charge the FTC and Justice Department with preventing mergers that may substantially lessen competition or tend to create a monopoly. They say that merger guidelines are frameworks for the analysis of mergers under antitrust laws. Uh, And then they also go through and they say that although the guidelines identify some of the competitive harms mergers present, markets may fall outside the frameworks under the current approach. And those frameworks being vertical and horizontal mergers. So now we have a merger in Activision Blizzard, which isn't necessarily horizontal. It's also not necessarily vertical, especially because if you just take video games as they are, sure, that market's massive. But look at the video games that that Nephi identified, particularly with uh, Overwatch with Call of Duty, with Halo, uh, a lot, I mean, just those three games alone, first person shooters, they're kind of in the same market. A lot of people will play all those same games. And so 
we're not looking at video games as a whole. We're looking at what are the games, what is the market for those games, and also how are you getting those games? That's, I think, what makes up a big part of this analysis. And with something like uh, Xbox Game Pass, if you have a, uh, a streaming service where Microsoft wants to, quote unquote, be the next sort of Netflix of games, uh, if they develop Game Pass where they're exclusively offering a subsection of the market and control everything about that subsection of the market, I think it's a really interesting case for determining whether it sees a government action for an enforcement review. Right. And, and although, you know, again, it's it's not as black and white as, as you would think, right? A lot of these lawyers, right? Like the articles that I was mentioning, I think uh, we had... Um, who is a PC gamer has a, has an article named "Will Microsoft Acquisition of Activision Blizzard Go Through?" We asked a lawyer, and in that in that sort of article, the lawyer presented a very short analysis that said, "Oh, well, this is a vertical transaction, show should be okay, right?" Um, there's another you know article where these guys are just talking about, it, but it's it's really not that simple. And so, um, one one of the potential issues that you can run into is as Jake was saying, um, is that a lot of the games that Activision Blizzard um, developed are are the largest and probably arguably the most popular games that exist and that people play. In other words, you know, if you go and you see what people are playing, a large significant portion of them are games by Microsoft and games by Activision Blizzard. And so although Microsoft doesn't have a monopoly on the particular games that are being developed and the games that are being played, there's an argument to be made by, and I think it's an argument that the FTC will make, is that the market uh, uh, the market share is significant enough to where it could create and it could stifle in, uh, innovation and competition in the field. In other words, if Microsoft, let's say, make Overwatch, Call of Duty, World of Warcraft, all those things exclusive to Xbox and PC, it would greatly, greatly, greatly cripple Sony's ability to compete with a corporation like Microsoft. I think actually whenever this deal went through, I think Sony's um, uh, market, uh, uh, their their public value dropped like $20 billion, something like that, because uh, investors could see the risk of potentially Microsoft having the ability to do that, having the ability to make these games exclusive, and which we'll talk a little bit more as to how that affects esports because that makes a, a big um uh, has a big effect on esports, but it's important to understand that this deal isn't so black and white. Everybody's like, what's well, a vertical transaction? So it's going to be fine. Not necessarily, but time will tell. And as Jake stated earlier, we can't give you an opinion, right? Because us as lawyers can't tell you this is a surety, which a lot of these guys that are out there that are that are in the field of esports drafting their you know contracts not really participating in litigation, which is what Jake and I have uh, our, our unique skill set is that we don't just argue the, the 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 drafting and terms of a contract, but we actually litigate them and understand that they're unknowns. The law consistently changed. You know, the, the uh, regulations, I mean, literally over the course of months can change. And so it's important to be up to date as to what what's the hottest and the newest laws and, and regulations that are being passed. Yeah. And the FTC's uh, vision of enforcement has changed within the past six months pretty substantially. Um, and so there's a bullet, a bolded bullet point in the FTC's January 18th press release that says unique characteristics of digital markets. So this is areas where they're trying to focus their guidelines to make sure they can regulate them effectively. 
And under the bullet point that says unique characteristics of digital markets, it says the agencies seek information on how to account for key areas of the modern economy like digital markets in these guidelines, which often have characteristics like zero price products, multi-sided markets, and data aggregation that the current guidelines do not address in detail. So the FTC is specifically targeting those applications and those parts of technology that uh, implicate areas of the market where you may not have traditional price fixing and you may not have traditional integration that gives a company complete control over certain products. But I think one thing that you can think about is obviously I don't think Call of Duty would ever just be uh, Xbox exclusive. They're not going to exclude. They're not going to take a billion dollar product and turn it into a $700 million product by excluding uh, PlayStation owners. But imagine a world in where to play Call of Duty, you have to subscribe to Microsoft Game Pass, right? And then that's a way of control. That's a way of spreading your data aggregation through the market to a point where you have such substantial control that you implicate these new federal guidelines. And you can't see me because I did new federal guidelines in quotes because the funny part is we don't know what they are yet. (laughs) The public comment period ends on March 21st, 2022 uh, for these guidelines. And the thing is, if you look at the merger rules, the FTC and the DOJ have uh, a timeline with which they can uh, require information or request interviews and determine whether they need to intervene in a merger. But that's not where regulation ends. After a merger is over, oh, we have Nephi's puppies coming to talk. Uh, (laughs) So after a merger is over, the FTC and DOJ can come back and they can potentially unwind. That's Nephi's dog. Uh, So the FTC and and DOJ can potentially unwind a transaction. And we've seen this with Facebook. They're in active litigation right now on whether they have to unwind their acquisitions of Instagram and WhatsApp. I mean, they're actively, they have a case going on as we speak. And so it's not just can Microsoft and Activision Blizzard keep everything under the hood until the end of this period is over for uh, federal review. It's that if they do anything in the future, near or far, that can come back and implicate federal antitrust enforcement. Right. And 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 I know you guys, if, if you guys were following our our roadmap of the episode. I know we kind of got a little bit uh, uh, jumbled up with our second and third point, which is how antitrust applies to Microsoft and the AB deal. Um, let's talk about the good thing, right? The merger between Microsoft and Activision Blizzard, in my opinion, because I'm a, you know, I have an Xbox, I have PC, I, I, I you know, I think is, is great. Um, there has been a lot of shortcomings with Microsoft, you know, even though they're one of the world's largest uh, uh, corporations and and you know Halo is a, is a loved all around franchise. Microsoft, as we all know, has has had some shortcomings when it comes to developing games. Right, you expect better from them, and you don't necessarily get it. Something that Activision Blizzard is very good at. I think, especially in the modern games as a service model, uh, I don't think Microsoft has been very good with that. I think in the past, where they've expected a title to launch with kind of everything it needs, it's fine. But Activision Blizzard has really created its own market where you release a game that may be bare bones at first, but you tell the player base to stick with you and they'll get more maps, more skins, more everything. 
and all those things may cost a little bit of money. Yeah, but <laughs> which is which is what what they lack, right? I mean, yeah. I'm sure we're all well aware, and it, it's kind of bummed that we didn't really make get to make like a hot off the press episode on the whole Activision litigation. Whenever uh, uh, Activision Blizzard, specifically Blizzard, was getting sued by the toxic culture and 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 of of the things that women were experiencing in the workplace at Blizzard, um, which has greatly inhibited their ability um, or I guess their their reputation, um, you know, in the market. And then, you know, that coupled with uh, COVID, which has had a dramatic, dramatic effect on esports, um, you know, and, and, and we all know that esports has been suffering due to COVID because it had to cancel live events. And so, you know, and, and, and the reason why we say that is because Activision Blizzard being, you know, the developers of the Call of Duty League, Overwatch League, you know, World of Warcraft. I mean, the, these guys are the main guys when it comes to whenever you think of 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 esports, because a lot of these games are some of the most consumed and the most viewed uh, esports uh, uh, games. And so, as Jake said, you know, getting some money from Microsoft, which is a multi-billion-dollar corporation, um, and I'm, I'm not talking about like the thirty; I'm talking about hundreds of billions of dollars. They have plenty of money that they're going to pump into esports, right? Including tournament winnings, events quality, stream quality, production quality. Uh, I mean, the, the fact is that they have the money to throw at, you know, sort of uh, um, increasing and strengthening the environments around these competitive games like the Call of Duty League and the Overwatch League. I mean, these guys have the means to make it what it's meant to be or what it really can be now that COVID is, you know, I guess you could arguably say it's slowing down with the new Omicron. I don't know if it is. We're not going to talk about that in too much detail, but these guys will have the money to put it into the the esports, um, uh, the, the environments and the leagues and make it you know, what it what the best that it can be, which is a massive, massive win for people like Jake, myself and you listeners that are either consumers or that are competitors or that are just some way involved with esports. Yeah. And another side benefit is that Activision Blizzard has had struggles, particularly over the past six months to a year um, with sexual harassment allegations um, harsh work conditions. We have resignations and removal of a lot of senior members that were sort of, I mean, these are pioneers in, in these games. Right. And so you have issues with allegations of harsh work conditions. I think Raven Software, uh, those workers are trying to get together to make some sort of action for their own workers' rights. Activision Blizzard was certainly facing a toxic culture label that they do not want. I think part of the merger with Microsoft that could be a benefit is from my understanding, speaking with current and former Microsoft employees, is that they do have a pretty strong framework for maintaining their own workers' rights in that environment. Now they're not unionized, but they do have a framework for keeping some of those things at bay. And so that's another side benefit. We're not gonna get into that too much because a lot of it's based on allegations and cases that haven't been ruled upon, but. I think that's another side benefit, but I think Nephi brings up a really important point in that there may not be a, a monopoly or a trust on video games. There may not be one on hardware. Certainly they're not going to take over all consoles. It's not like Microsoft's buying Sony and Nintendo, but there will be one overarching entity over the most popular esports titles. 
Every single title that we've mentioned so far, StarCraft, WarCraft, Call of Duty, Overwatch, uh, Halo, these are massive esports titles in the traditional esports term that we use, which is one team playing another team on a stage or you know on your streaming service. They're all going to be under one umbrella. And they kind of were with Activision, but remember, with Microsoft in the loop, it's a much bigger company that comes under much higher scrutiny. And so I do think that to the extent that esports teams or perhaps even giant esports companies uh, like the European esports tournament organizers, I think in dealing with all of these esports titles and the leagues that are now under the Activision, Blizzard and Microsoft umbrella, I think there could be antitrust concerns. In just in dealing with those esports leagues, right? Because now you have all the leagues, most are not all the leagues, but many of the leagues under the same company. I think the only ones you're missing in terms of major esports titles are you know, League of Legends and Counter Strike. Yep, Counter Strike. That's probably it, right? And so, in dealing with esports leagues, I think you may see the attraction of some antitrust concerns. And I think that's one aspect that not a single article I've read identifies. They don't look at this through an esports lens. They don't think about it through a sports lens because they believe that A, esports maybe aren't important enough in this grand corporate structure, and B, there's enough carve-outs in antitrust law to where sports aren't really a factor. But I think this is a, a gray area that needs to be talked about more, and I'm glad we're talking about it here because I bet when you see European or, or even US-based tournament organizers, league organizers, and enforcement frameworks deal with the new Activision Blizzard Microsoft, you're going to see a concert of action among those leagues that can attract enforcement. Yeah. So in summary, this is probably a good thing. It's a good thing for esports because we're a lot of these uh, leagues are going to get the attention and the money that they really deserve in order to take it to the level where it needs to be and that we're all going to benefit from. They're just going to have to be careful. They're just going to have to be extremely <laughs> careful. Right. And and yeah. obviously, you know, that the, we the, the, the sort of the biggest risk is that esport games could become exclusive. Right. Which would greatly, greatly impact um, the, 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 the scene, because obviously, you know, a majority of Call of Duty players, if I'm not mistaken, are, are on PlayStation. Uh, a lot of them are moving to PC, of course, but Call of Duty has been significantly more popular on PlayStation than Xbox. And if it was to become exclusive, that would cripple that particular scene. Now, to realistically speaking, though, you know, Phil Spencer, who's essentially the guy in charge of Microsoft Gaming, the CEO of Microsoft Gaming, I don't know what his uh, particular title is, has said that, you know, games that are being played on PlayStation are likely not to become exclusives um, because Microsoft just simply has no intention to pull communities away from the Sony platform. And so, you know, they, they, they're, they're in writing saying, um, you know, they're, they're, they're in writing saying, um, in, in writing, they're saying, we're not going to do what everybody's worried they're going to do, but that, that, that isn't, you know, that doesn't stop them from doing it if they wanted to, assuming the FTC approves everything going. And, you know, we don't know what's going to happen. And so um, only time will tell. And, you know, with that being said, I want to uh, uh, open the floor to Jake to see if you have any closing comments. Um, so that way we can wrap up this episode and talk about what's going to come up next. 
Yes, let me just sip on this open floor for a second. Uh, <laughs> no, I think I think it's a good thing. I think you're gonna have to be careful. Uh, obviously, Call of Duty is not gonna be exclusive anytime soon. I think you may see a deal with Xbox, similar to the one you have with PlayStation, where you get uh, maps or um, certain DLC earlier. But I don't think you're gonna see a situation where it becomes exclusive. And I think that concern should probably be the least of anyone's concern on their mind. Uh, I do think that in terms of uh, eliminating sort of nascent competition with uh, game streaming services or with game developers, I think that's much more of a concern. And again, I think people have really underestimated the impact this will have on a coalition of esports leagues potentially dealing in concert with countries and other organizers that span across countries. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, thank you for listening to us talk about antitrust. This is probably the only time where I've talked about antitrust and tried to make it somewhat entertaining. Exciting. Yeah. Which is difficult. I do think it's fascinating in this context because a lot of people are talking about it and a lot of people are kind of missing the mark. Yeah, you know, uh, on the concerns and especially with the recent developments and the wrinkle that esports throws in there, I just think it's it's monumentally fascinating that this is all happening at the same time where you get a change in the regulation framework. There's guidelines that don't exist yet, and then there's a merger that might be implicated by those guidelines right, immediately. Right. And so I'm sure you guys are sitting there saying, "Well, what's what's the answer? Is it going to go through or not?" I'm going to give you the typical lawyer answer. It depends, right? It depends on what the law is and what the law will be, assuming it's changed. Um, but at a minimum, you know, although I, I we didn't give you the answer to, to, to the question, will this go through or not? Um, at least you're more educated, you're better versed. That way, if you have a, a discussion with your colleagues or you know, with your with your chat or, you know, with whoever you're working with, you're a little more educated on the issue, right? You're a little educated on the subject, which antitrust, a lot of people don't know what it is. And at least after listening to this uh, short, uh, I think sub one hour episode, you can at a minimum say, you know what? I understand what antitrust is. I understand the implications, how it applies to esports, how it applies to uh, this environment that I so much love, which is the environment of video games and intellectual property. Um, you know, you can walk away a little more educated on the subject. And that's really all we want to do, right? Our goal here is to educate our viewers, uh, educate our listeners. And so that way you guys are well versed in, 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 in the world of esports. And so with that being said, thank you guys so much for listening. Make sure you follow us on all platforms. We will try to be better about creating episodes. Now that, uh, you know, everything has fallen through the cracks. We, we will try our best to be a little more consistent as Jake stated early on. If you guys have any comments, suggestions, if you want, if there are topics you want to discuss, um, you know, reach out to us. Let us know. Shoot us a DM on on uh, Twitter. That's probably the best way to reach us is via Twitter. Um, and, you know, we are there. We're accessible. Uh, there are guys that have reached out to us. I've spent significant amount of time helping guys that have reached out to particularly through our Twitter um, to ask us for, you know, advice, help, um, you know, and we do what we can, uh, at least, you know, with time that we're allowed. Yeah. Uh, as always, thank you guys so much for listening. Reach out to us if you have any questions, suggestions, and once again, uh, also um, follow the podcast on Spotify 
and please leave a uh, Apple review because ours are probably dated, right? Yeah, now. on Apple Podcasts, we're we're not appearing because we haven't released episodes in a little while. So make sure you guys go listen, give us a five star review. Um, assuming that's what you actually think. If you don't think we deserve five stars, don't leave a comment. <laughs> don't leave a review. Just leave it because it's gonna hurt our our uh, metrics. So uh, I'm guys. just Look, kidding. I'm we just kidding. Down offers to sell the podcast. All right, we're remaining resilient for our listeners. Okay. We love all you guys. Um, No, but thanks again for listening and we'll catch you guys on the next one. See you on the next one.